Welcome to the Access Podcast, the new monthly conversation about access and participation in post-16 education. My name is Renata Albuquerque, and my guest today is Dr. Omar Khan, Director of the Center for, Transformation, for Transforming Access and Student Outcomes in Higher Education, or TASER, as it's more commonly known. Omar joined TASER from the Race Equality Think Tank Running Me Trust, where he had been Head of Policy and more recently Director. Omar holds several advisory positions, including Chair of the Ethnicity Strand Advisory Groups to Understanding Society, Trustee of the Political Studies Association and of the Barrow Canterbury Trust, and member of the 2001 Research Excellence Framework and 2014 Research Excellence Framework Assessments. Omar was previously a governor at the University of London, Commissioner of the Financial Inclusion Commission, and a CLOR Social Leadership Fellow. Um, I would like to also like to add that this podcast is edited by my colleague, Simon Tullett. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today, Omar. We're really chuffed to have Tezo um, coming to our fifth episode of the Access podcast. And, you know, I know that you've worked in the Renemy Trust for quite a long time. And I was just wondering if you could just tell us how do you think that this, the work that you did there informed your approach at Tezo? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. I was at the Running Me Trust, as you know, for a few, almost two decades, actually, in the end. Um, wow. And I was, yeah, uh, the director there for six and a half years uh, until um, the spring of 2020. Um, I think one of the obvious ways in which my experience at the Running Me Trust informs uh, my approach here is the focus on tackling inequality. Um, the TESO, or the long kind of were uh, named for it, the Center for Transforming Access and Student Outcomes in Higher Education. So I'm going to say TESO for the rest of this podcast, uh-huh. um, is an evidence center, um, but it's an evidence center that's focused uh, not just on higher education, but on tackling inequalities in higher education. And at Runnymede, um, that was our aim as well. So obviously, we focus particularly on racial inequalities. Um, We focused on the way in which racial discrimination impacts people's life chances. Uh, We also did some work on the issue of uh, racial inequalities in higher education. So I had some familiarity there. Uh, I think the other thing to say is that um, as with Tezo, uh, Runnymede approached the question of how do we address and understand the issue of racial inequalities uh, through an approach uh, that focused on evidence, um, right? So we were we were not really a campaigning organization per se. Obviously, we wanted our research and evidence to influence policy. Uh, we wanted, um, and and we and Tezo wants to, of course. We don't want our reports simply to sit on the shelf. We want our reports to inform policy and practice. And I think that is a similar experience uh, at. At, at Runnymede and at Tezo. Um, and I think the final thing I wanted to say was that um, obviously the other, it's a slight, it's not exactly the same uh, mm-hmm. issue, but um, inequalities also are various and, and, and different, right? So Tezo is focused on a large range of inequalities, arguably a larger range than at Runnymede. So, you know, not just questions of racial inequalities, but class inequalities, gender inequalities, inequalities of disability, and I think it's important to try to reflect uh, and understand each of those inequalities uh, in a holistic way. But I think it's also important to understand that those experiences and the nature of those inequalities also differ. Uh, you know, that not all groups actually are experience uh, barriers in the same way. 
the systemic nature of some inequalities are quite different from others in terms of their social origin and how they're reproduced. Um, and I would say the sort of analogy with Runnymede, of course, was that um, different ethnic minority groups are obviously differently positioned, for example, in the labor market, but also in terms of higher education. So we know, for example, that there is a BAME uh, degree awarding gap, but the awarding gap is is largest, the gap between the proportion of students who get a first and a 2-1 uh, between white and black students is, is the largest. So mm. while there are inequalities generally, um, it's important, I think, to understand the specificity uh, of each of those inequalities. It's really interesting because of course when we work, it's we talk about um, multiple indices of deprivation and and we try to do one analysis and another. So yeah, thanks for that. Um, as you know, a university's access work has been assessed, assessed traditionally by its ability to persuade those from underrepresented backgrounds to apply for a degree, to undertake a degree. However, there are many reasons why someone may choose not to go to university directly from school or if older in, a, in any direct way after attending an outreach program. And yet, you know, we're constantly being measured um, as it seems to be the, the golden measure of success is whether someone um, goes to university. And then we have this new policy um, that uh, proposes to limit access to student finance, which is likely to contract numbers, as opposed to the previous policy, which is to drive expansion. So how do you think these changes will impact on the work of TESO or what TESO tells partner universities? So we have actually done some work on mature students. I, I think I wanted to flag that first, just because it's on our website. And if you oh, yeah. do, if you and your listeners uh, afterwards are interested in that, um, we published a report on mature learners last year, uh, outlining the evidence base on what works to support mature learners. Um, and frankly, while there is some evidence, um, there probably isn't quite enough evidence of, of what works in terms of supporting mature learners. And Probably also it's the case that we could probably do a bit more. Uh, to the access level, sorry. Y yes, yes. Uh -huh. I mean, I think that obviously there's a lot of people, and, and I think mature learners is also obviously quite a broad category. There's It actually Indeed. In mm. includes people at age 21, as well as people obviously quite a lot older. Um, and yeah, so, so we did um, a research report that, as I say, you can find on our, our website that outlined some of the things that providers are doing to support mature learners, um, to make sure that obviously they apply, but also to make sure that they have a good experience while in higher education, that they're supported. Uh, a lot of mature learners, not, not all, but quite a lot of mature learners would prefer to stay at home. They don't necessarily want to get involved in undergraduate student life in terms of things like societies, um, but they do want to participate in the life of the university otherwise. So um, I just, I thought I would flag that. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of our focus, I mean, we are focused, we divide our work into sort of four thematic areas. Uh, and the first one is on access and participation or, or what we call pre-entry work. Uh, and we are continuing to focus on the evidence base of what works to encourage young people to attend higher education, whether that's at a university or a college. Um, so we're looking at, we're, we're currently conducting a randomized control trial in a, uh, in a number of providers uh, looking at whether or not summer schools are 
effective or how effective summer schools are uh, at increasing the likelihood of disadvantaged young people to apply to uh, higher education. And I, I think that that work should should not be affected by any policy changes. I think there's still a, uh, a sort of shared interest in trying to encourage, and the OFS retains a, a commitment that you know um, providers need to Im- improve the proportion of young people attending higher education from more disadvantaged neighborhoods. That remains um, part of the sort of regulatory aims of the Office for Students. So I don't, I don't think that that element is going to go away. Um, we are also then looking at our second theme, uh, which I think does touch, our second and third themes, I think, touch quite a bit on your question uh, in terms of the outcomes of higher education, right? What kinds of jobs people get uh, and how well they do. So our second thematic area is on post-entry work. And the main activity we're doing there is looking at whether or not um, interventions in the curriculum, for example, curriculum reform or decolonizing the curriculum, uh, have an impact on that BAME um, degree awarding gap that I referred to uh, earlier. So do students who who uh, experience or, or go on a course, uh, attend a course, complete a course that is uh, reformed in some way or decolonized, uh, have better outcomes than those that don't. And then the third area is on the labor market. This work has just started. Um, and I do appreciate that sometimes in the sector, there's concern that uh, well, as you put it, that there'll be number controls or that courses will be forced to be dropped if they don't reach certain kinds of employment outcomes. Um, but I think, sorry to interrupt you here, because my question is really about what students want. And I know that what students want is informed by a number of things. But we also know that students who are from disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely to be instrumental in their decisions um, about what degrees they do. Um because they are thinking about debt and they are thinking about, um, you know, how they're going to, um, what jobs they're going to get at the end of it. And, I, and I'm just really, you know, <clears throat> I'm just quite interested to know about, for me, the work of access it's, um, would ideally be about, you know, getting people to continue to love learning and continue to understand learning. I was watching a, a completely different talk and we're talking about how people change jobs all the time. And what it's really required for them is that they continue to be able to learn throughout their lives. So, so it seems to me that, you know, it's important to um, assess the impact of access activities, outreach activities, and, and quite rightly, I, I think evaluation is really important. But I was just wondering if there's more to it than just whether someone progressed to university or not. Um, well, yes, of course. I, I, I of course, think <laughs> that uh, outcomes matter more than um, labor market ones, but also that uh, we should in, try to encourage and ensure that those who don't attend higher education have both good outcomes in life, whether that's in terms of the labor market, but also things like well-being and self-improvement and self-confidence. And in fact, I do think it's a missing piece of the jigsaw in the UK, which is um, ongoing opportunities for adult education and learning, uh, ensuring that we have a culture of self-improvement and knowledge. I think those are markers of a good society. Uh, we at TESO are not directly focused on measuring those things, but of mm-hmm. course, um, 
us focusing on what our remit is doesn't mean that I don't think that we don't mm-hmm. think those other issues are important. The one mm-hmm. way in which we are, I think, what well, maybe more than one way, but um, two existing pro- projects that I think capture a little bit of what you're getting at are mm-hmm. one is on the value of HE. So we're producing a report on the value of higher education. Um, and that will be probably uh, published in the summer, perhaps the autumn of this year. And I think one of the uh, two kind of different kind of drivers of why we wanted to do that work is I think that there is concern that the value of HE is sometimes construed too narrowly, only focused on the labor market. Um, But secondly, we do think actually that the labor market outcomes matter because obviously how well you do in life is is very much determined by what kinds of jobs and what kinds of pay you've got. Um, and I do think it's a it's an issue where disadvantaged students, uh, black and minority ethnic students, for example, uh, have less uh, le- have worse labor market outcomes even when they attend higher education. And that is something that I think universities could do more uh, to improve upon. Um, but I think some of the literature on the value of higher education doesn't actually focus on those questions of inequality. So people talk about the value of edu- higher education, and they talk about it in terms of the overall GDP that is contributed to the economy or uh, the benefit that, that the general benefit that people get in terms of, um, well, the things that you've described and that I've described earlier in terms of personal growth and learning, but do disadvantaged students get that equally, right? Do they, do they actually uh, experience, enjoy higher education in the same way? As you say, as you ask, um, do they actually have the same aims and objectives when they attend a course? Is that, that's probably not a bad thing. I think it's perfectly rational. For example, even myself, um, most uh, immigrant parents have a very transactional uh, approach towards higher education. My parents wanted me to study law or medicine. um, And I don't think that's sometimes perceived as a sort of cultural preference amongst Asian communities. But I think it's just as much a rational economic preference where as a parent, you don't have social networks. You don't necessarily know the local educational system. So it makes sense. It's quite rational as a, as a migrant parent to want to sort of encourage your child to get a qualification that gets you a job at the end of the day. So I, I, I do know even through personal experience that um, mm. people approach the question of why is higher education important differently. But I think what we're trying to do at Tezo is capture uh, in our value of HE work, for example, uh, some trying to quantify some of those benefits. So looking at existing surveys that do so other than including labor market, but also other outcomes. And secondly, to focus on those inequalities, right? To say, what is the evidence of what we know about whether different kinds of students um, are able to achieve those outcomes, whether their labor market or whether their well-being, whether their life satisfaction or job satisfaction, or, or indeed whether there are um, uh, enjoyed their experience on campus, um, which is another important question. Um, the other, I know I'm, I'm, this is a long answer, but the other element of our research that I think will um, feed into this is it sounds quite nerdy or techy. Uh, we're doing a project on survey validation. Uh, and I think it does sound nerdy or techy, but a, the, 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 you'll know this or not. It's very important when asking and designing surveys that we understand why are we asking the questions that we are of people, of students, um, what concepts um, are, are we trying to get at? Have we designed the question in such a way that really reflects the concept accurately? Um, are the concepts consistent uh, in terms of how people understand them? 
in terms of how people respond to survey questionnaires? Um, and are we actually capturing uh, the kinds of concepts that matter in terms of measuring attainment, right? So a lot of survey questions around uh, winding participation asks students about things like, ask young people about aspirations and attitudes, but don't necessarily always get at whether or not they in fact applied to university, right? So you, you ask a pre and post survey of uh, attendees on a summer school, what was their relative likelihood? What was their relative attitude towards higher education at the beginning? And what was their relative uh, attitude at the end? Um, so we think that's really important, those survey questions. And we ourselves uh, um, are collecting those kinds of questions and that kind of data. But we also would like to look at what are the sort of actual correlations between those kinds of measures and then actually applying to uh, higher education. And then, of course, collecting some of those data longer term, like you're suggesting, do the interventions that are happening at age 16 or 18 have an impact, not, you know, not just in terms of applying, but in terms of the experience in higher education? Because I do think it's... Yeah, sorry. No, it's just because... I wanted to go back. I really want to talk about the validation surveys because obviously there's so much going in the sector. It'd be great to talk a little bit more about it. But one of the things I wanted to ask um, in regards to the to your um, previous um, to the previous topic, which was about this uh, the value of HG, is that the value of HG is inserted in a much wider socioeconomic context, right? Um, it's in comparison to something. And, and so I was just wondering um, if you could tell us a bit more about how it takes into consideration those other aspects. Because sometimes it feels a bit like things can be um, dissociated as if Heiji could you know, do things that it can't do alone. It can only do that as part of a wider society. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, obviously, um, inequalities in society are both quite sort of systemic and also obviously higher education is an intervention at age 18 and we know from the wider kind of literature on inequality that that the impact of sort of inequalities at at sort of age, by age five. Yeah. yeah by age five or by, by age 11 are really um profound and difficult to move right so you could argue that yeah trying to make an intervention at age 16 or 18 is too late and uh, but at the same time, of course, that's what higher education is. So higher education is about, uh, you know, improving the life chances, improving and extending um, people's uh, opportunities at age 18. So it, 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 there's a limitation about what it can do to tackle those deeper inequalities. Mm. I think my only concern on that is, is twofold. One is I think it, it is a little bit Sometimes I feel that that is used as an excuse for higher education institutions not to do enough at age 18. So just because there were inequalities before and just because those are quite intractable and difficult to move, it doesn't mean, I don't think, that HE institutions can't and shouldn't do even more to, to address them at age 18. And I think that things like contextualized admissions, for example, should be used much more um, extensively. And I said, the second thing I would say is um, I know it's a controversial area, but I do think that um, there are a lot of expert academics on understanding inequality that could um, work more with um, charities as well as schools to try to address some of those inequalities at an earlier phase. I think um, the reality, of course, is that many, many institutions and academics 
are doing exactly that. So I think that um, hopefully there's an opportunity with sort of, I think, a newfound focus of the Office for Students on that area that, um, that we can actually highlight a lot of things that are already happening. Because I mean, even at the Running Me Trust, I was aware of activities, for example, that we did with year nine students around the curriculum, uh, working with academics. Uh, we even did interventions uh, working to try to um, reduce the use of school exclusions with an academic, um, and that was in primary schools. So I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, and I think that universities sometimes don't get enough credit for the work that they're doing in that space. But I also accept that there's a limitation to how far universities can move uh, some of those longstanding inequalities, especially when we're talking about um, geography, um, social class, uh, even racial inequalities that are quite have deep societal roots and that will require a wider sort of set of policies to to, to tackle. Mm. It'll be it'll be interesting to see when the report comes out and and. Um, <clears throat> You know what criteria you've used, how you um, well watch the space. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, watch. I get you back I, here to talk to us again. <laughs> well, and I welcome any feedback from you, okay. or, including critical feedback from you, Renata, or from your listeners. Be lovely. I think um, just to say, we have. I believe I have asked. Um, so we're, we've commissioned the work. We're not doing the work. So I, that's uh -huh. why I'm being a little bit cautious. I'm not trying uh -huh, to hide uh -huh. anything here, uh -huh. um, and it's also not yet done. But I, I do believe that we will be looking at questions that emerge from wider social surveys like understanding society mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. that asks that's a sort of household panel survey that asks questions around even things like how well uh do you think people in your neighborhood get along here mm -hmm. and i think one of the and this actually does flow from my experience of working at running meet and it is something that i'm trying to think about how tezo might measure mm -hmm. uh one of the things that um I think that higher education does do that is sometimes mm -hmm. underrated, even mm -hmm. by the sector. I think the sector could do a better job of sort of tooting its own horn here, but also demonstrating that it is true, um, which is that in a society where you have such inequalities, where you have geographical um, inequalities, where young people might not meet people not like themselves mm -hmm. in schools because their parents, their teachers, mm -hmm. their their geographical setting means that they're they have limited scope to meet mm -hmm. people who aren't like themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Higher education is often one of the places that you first really genuinely get to meet and work with and debate in classroom settings and indeed socially, right? Um, people who aren't like you have very different backgrounds, who have very different personal experiences. And all of us learn from that, right? I, I learned from meeting people who are very different from me when I was in higher education. It's one of the things I loved about it. And I would even go so far as to say, we sometimes see these sort of polls or surveys that suggest that graduates are more socially tolerant or more socially liberal than non-graduates. My, my own view of this, partly based on the literature from the United States, is that it's less about curriculum or learning in the classroom and more about social interaction. It's yeah. more about the fact that graduates are much more likely to meet people from different racial and social backgrounds from themselves than our non-graduates. Yeah. And so then the question for me is, um, you know, both how can we better grapple and uh, understand when that isn't the case and when mm -hmm. it is the case, but also could we extend that learning uh, to um, local community settings for non-graduates? And indeed, I would like to see graduates and non-graduates mixing a bit more because one of the things that has emerged uh, in some of those polls is that, um, 
graduates and non-graduates are are slightly less likely to have each other in their friendship circles and in it's fact it's interesting because my next our next episode is about mental health and you might have heard about the mental health chatter it does talk a lot about the social context and some of the some of these differences may play out on people's and what universities what else can universities could be doing to break down some of that social barriers ensuring that people um, do relate to each other and etc exactly a, yeah it's a yeah. very interesting area that um it's there's growing interest in it and for us uh, as SOAS who work in both access and participation um it's 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 really interesting to think about how we you know go from here um I wanted to, in regards to the validator survey, so there's some validator surveys, for example, in the Sutton Trust website that we have um, used in the past. We also work with an organization called Nerupi um, that you may have heard of. They are doing um, a toolkit as well and coming up with some questions. How do you think that those things, um, and I'm going to apologize here because it's not on my question list. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> You know, it's important in a way, you know, even when we talk about when, uh, you know, we did an episode on the civic university, the mental health charter, these are, there's so much um, that are linked in or, already. So it would be quite, I suppose it makes sense to link in initiatives with what's also already there, I guess, it's my question. Sure. So we're doing the uh, survey validation work actually with the Brilliant Club uh, and with, I think, uh, Cambridge and I think Sutton Trust are well, I don't know if they're directly involved, but we are working with the Sutton Trust on this and other on other projects. So I am, and I have obviously um, met also with Narupi. So we're obviously not wanting to reproduce things that already exist. That would be um, uh, a waste of resourcing. Um, but obviously, we we focus on it in a particular way. You know, in terms of trying to uh, use help help use surveys in in designing evaluation projects that focus on causal impact. Um, we, I think, I mean, I think we're building on pre-existing evidence base. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not personally involved in, in, in the survey validation project, so I can't yeah. specifically respond to the relationship to Sutton Trust or Narupi pre-existing kind of... Um, well, the Sutton Trust is not, their, <clears throat> it's not their own validation. They're just listing validated yes, questionnaires yes. in certain areas like motivation, metacognition, and stuff like that. Yeah, so it'll it yeah. will be similar. I think it will okay. be pulling together some of this. Um, we certainly focus on cognitive and metacognitive outcomes as one of the uh, categories in which we're interested in uh, um, for for questionnaires, um, as well as as I said, social outcomes um, and motivational outcomes and self perceptions. So we're looking at the various ways in which um, surveys. Um, yeah, the various categories, the various kinds of questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my understanding, as I said, I'm, I'm a little bit away from the, the project at the moment because it's a few, yes, it's sure. a few months from being published. But um, yeah, it's, I, I'm hopeful that it'll, it'll help support. Mm -hmm. support existing work. And also, though, I think, hopefully, yeah. I think the other thing is, um, obviously, each institution can and should design its own surveys based partly on uh their existing student population their, their objectives their, sort of, their yeah. setting their objectives yeah. but i do think we think that there is more scope for having more similar use of constructs and scales across the sector um, and that this would actually improve uh evaluation work 
um, if we could try to agree a bit more on some of how some of these measures, uh, even if um, there will always be a need. And, and in fact, uh, it, it, you know, we, we anticipate that some smaller providers or providers that are in different areas that are, as you say, are trying to ask uh, about different kinds of courses may need to obviously tweak uh, the kinds of questions that they're asking. Um, I just wanted to move on from that to this expectation that universities will collaborate with schools to raise attainment, <clears throat> because that is not something new, but it's sort of coming back. Um, so, because not long ago, widening participation practitioners struggled to elicit enough information to evaluate the impact of things like mentoring, tutoring, running after um, after school clubs, and other activities that were aimed at um, raising learners' attainment. And not only that, but more often than not, it was impossible to isolate the impact of outreach from other experiences in students' lives. Um, that this work that you're doing, it is that, I suppose it's going to be informed by that, right? About how, how do we actually evaluate raising attainment when when all the literature tells us that what goes on in the classroom is more important than anything else. And this idea of long-term that you've already touched upon. Because, you know, again, in my experience, we, we would have an impact. Um, <clears throat> so we didn't really <clears throat> work so much, for example, I didn't really work so much in terms of preparing students for exams, but rather trying to get students to have the study skills that would support them in success. Because what the study skills that are required at university are actually quite different from the ones that are used in schools, which there's a lot of memorization in schools to pass exams. And in universities, they need to do more <clears throat> analytical thinking and stuff like that. So oh, how do you think that um, practitioners can, um, can have robust indicators of success? Um, yeah, and, and maybe how can TASA support them with through the work that you're already doing? Okay, yeah, it's a good question. Um, mm. As you know, we're a relatively new organization, but it is something that we've uh, started to work on, um, trying to support, obviously, uh, providers to ensure that whatever interventions they do consider and are already doing, in fact, um, to raise attainment in schools are are properly evidence-based, that the, the measure, uh, the, that the shorter and longer-term outcomes are definitely collected. I mean, obviously, one of the things it raises is that uh, this will require longer-term evaluation activities, because if you're asking the question of does an intervention at age 11 uh, have an impact on higher education participation rates. Well, obviously you're going to have to keep those data for at least seven years, right? Until you actually have the outcome measure of them applying to schools. Um, so there is, there is, um, there are issues there, although I think that it is possible to link the national pupil database to some of those outcomes. And I'm assuming I'm expecting that the officer students in DFE shouldn't be making that easier for providers as this becomes a priority. I think the second thing I did want to say is, um, I do think there's a lot of work already happening in this space, uh, as you've said as well, Renata, that um, providers are already doing a lot of work <clears throat> directly working with schools or more indirectly through uh, local community organizations or charities, right? So youth organizations. Um, mm. And so I do think um, one of the things we're trying to do, uh, it's a little bit embryonic, I would say at the moment, is 
uh, develop a kind of typology of the different ways in which um, universities and colleges are working directly or indirectly uh, with schools and others to increase, to, to improve attainment. Um, and as you say, there's a wide range of different kinds of activities there. And I think what we'd like to try to support the sector to do is to determine which of those kinds of interventions are more likely to work and which, which are maybe less, uh, less evidence of effective practice. There is some international evidence too, I think, as I'm sure you know, in terms of things like um, student mentoring. So especially from, I think, Germany and, and Spain, I think it is that there's, there's sort of long long-standing uh, pr- uh, sort of projects whereby undergraduate students help to mentor disadvantaged people in, the, in, in a local region. Uh, and that does have a positive impact on attainment. Um, and then obviously that's quite different from things that might focus more on a school of education, for example, supporting a leadership team at a school to improve curriculum design or something like that, or even management, right? So I think even though that looks quite far removed uh, from attainment, obviously when a university's school of education helps to train a leadership team in a school, the uh, expectation is that that will have a knock-on effect on uh, pupil attainment. And I think that can be measured, right? We can, we can look at whether or not that's happening. So we will be trying to gather together this evidence over the next six months to a year. Um, but it is, I think, fair to say that uh, there's quite a bit of work to be done to make sure that uh, the evidence is robust enough. Uh, but also, as I said, some of these um, outcomes are quite far down the line. They're quite longer term. So we will be needing to think, I think, I think also about more intermediate outcomes, outcomes in the next year or two. So an intervention at age 11, what is the impact at age 14? Uh, And the final thing I'd say about this is the Education Endowment Foundation does have a lot of work on its website on on interventions in schools, obviously. And we are looking to work with them a bit to see whether or not we could look at the longer term impact uh, of some of the interventions uh, that they evaluated, you know, six or seven years ago, because obviously the students that went through those interventions in schools uh, at age 12, say in 2015, are now old enough to have been uh, applying to university and colleges. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, that's what we're trying to do. We want to support the sector to ensure that um, whatever interventions that are happening now are evidence as well as we can, but also to make sure that if, if, if providers are thinking of doing something new in this space, that they actually focus on those things that are most likely to, to be effective. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about you know, <clears throat> um, the balance between quantitative and qualitative data collection um, in terms of informing um, our evaluation of impact. But at the same time, I also wanted to, <clears throat> to talk to you because <clears throat> even though you are a data guy and, 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 and who else, who better to ask than someone who um, is an, an expert in their area, there's always going to be a limitation to data, right? Yes, sorry, that's the, yes. I didn't realize that was the end of the question. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah there is, there's definitely always a limitation uh, to data. Um, and I think that it's important that uh, if we are going to do the kinds of impact evaluations that, that Tezo is here to support, 
um, mm. that we have the the best data possible. And I I wouldn't advise shoehorning a methodological approach uh, uh, into an area or in an intervention where those data don't exist. Uh, I think we do think that more that actually there are more creative ways of doing, for example, quasi-experimental designs. Uh, we do also think that more work could be done in terms of things like uh, data linkage and data consistency, so that um, this kind of what we're calling type three impact evaluation following on from yep. the OFS's yeah, mm -hmm. uh, typology. Uh, I think it is, I think we're showing actually through our work in the first two years that it is more feasible than people think. Um, and I, um, but I do, of course, accept that in many cases it won't be possible uh, to, to do this kind of impact evaluation and that I would st still be an advocate for uh, other forms of evaluation where, where this, uh, where, wherever possible, right? So mm -hmm. some evaluation is, is better than no evaluation. Um, and we would definitely think that you can learn a lot from a lot of sort of IPEs. We ourselves actually use, uh, supplement the work that we do uh, in, in all of our projects. We do focus groups or interviews and, and um, we work with providers to talk about what is their theory of change um, because all of that, you know, data by itself can't tell you what it is that the intervention is aiming to achieve. Uh, it can't tell you how the intervention is designed. And so we definitely spend quite a lot of time, in fact, um, supporting providers to help them explain better what it is that their intervention is aiming to achieve uh, in a more narrative way, uh, but also speaking with, for example, students who've experienced an intervention to see their understanding of what it is. Um, but at the end of the day, I do think that it's really important to have the data, to improve data where we can, to try to... Um, and to use data to learn. Absolutely. Personally, I think, that's my, I do, it's my one thing. Th I, that's yeah. why I like evaluation, because you have the time to then think a bit, wow, you know, because, and to have the time to think about it, your findings as well, which, you know, the, the actual writing of the analysis is, it's very, an important part of doing that. Yeah, I just want to say one final thing as well about this, which is, I mean, when I was at Runnymede as well, mm. I did... Obviously, the question of data collection and ethnicity can and on race can be quite controversial, whether it's in terms of collecting it, uh, uh, privacy issues, or even, of course, um, the validity or uh, consistency of the categories themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I do accept that there are, are of course, uh, question marks and that we should try to obviously improve uh, the measurement where we can. But I do think it would be a, a disaster, genuinely a disaster, not to collect those data because those data are one of the things that we can best use to demonstrate that there is, in fact, a social inequality here mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that this is an inequality that needs tackling. If you mm -hmm. go to countries that do not collect data on ethnicity, for example, uh, in France, they don't collect such data. They have mm -hmm. no idea what the extent of, uh, for example, the unemployment gaps or the pay gaps or degree attainment gaps are. And mm -hmm. so no ability then to design solutions to try mm -hmm. to tackle those inequalities. So I think, you know, data is absolutely a necessary tool for analysis, but it's also a necessary tool, in my view, for campaigning and for policy design. Mm -hmm. With, without, mm -hmm. without data, you know, we're not able to make the case as strongly as we can. And my final point, and I, I do, I know mm -hmm. this will sound maybe a little bit too proselytizing, but mm -hmm. I do feel... Um, it isn't good enough to just feel passion and commitment to an mm -hmm. issue. Uh, sometimes passion and commitment, passion and commitment are necessary. Absolutely. Um, 
but they're not sufficient because sometimes we might, with all the goodwill in the world, design something, try out something that just doesn't work. Not because, mm-hmm. you know, we're of bad faith or lack, lack uh, concern about effectiveness, but rather we were just mistaken or rather we didn't really fully understand the context or even something like COVID comes along, right? And mm-hmm, disrupts mm-hmm. what was in fact a very good intervention, but all of a sudden becomes one that won't work because there's a new reality out there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, uh, it, it is important to test our own assumptions and to make sure that yeah. the pit passion and the commitment that we've got to a cause um, is actually being delivered in terms, especially yeah. not least as, you know, we're trying to help and support people. We're trying to tackle inequalities and, you know, we have actually, to make sure that those people benefit. I'm not, it's, this is not an argument against you or not. It's more. No, I'm no, just, not me, but even my, my, my colleagues, I think that a lot of us really want to, um, spend more time doing evaluation. Um, a lot of us um, have the skills or would like to update the skills. A lot of teams are hiring um, specialist researchers for that, you know, to, to, to help with that kind of work. There's um, sometimes a tension between, you know, you're doing evaluation so that you can learn about what you're doing and whether it works or not and whether to make a decision whether to continue or not or whether you're doing that to be judged from the outside, you know. And I think that sometimes people feel a bit tense about um, about that uh, as well as thinking, actually, um, I don't have these skills and, um, you know, and I'm being asked to do something that I don't know how to. And then they cre- create some resistance. But what I see when I go to LinkedIn, Nerupi, Neon, and all of the different conferences that happen around, you know, higher education and access and participation work is people producing evidence and producing research and 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 showcasing them in these places. So there is a lot already going on there. I, absolutely. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I think actually there's... Um, well, I know there's a lot of <laughs> evaluation work happening. Um, mm. And I think, in fact, um, yeah, we could we could probably all of us do more to to promote the existing um, evaluation work. Um, I think that one um, one thing that I, I, I think Tezo is, is here to do definitely is to show to try to share the learning from that across the mm-hmm. sector so that if, if, a, if a particular institution is doing something that's been well evaluated and, and is clearly shown uh, evidence of promise, mm-hmm. that one of the reasons we want to publish that work and work with the sector to learn from the sector of what's working mm-hmm. is so that others um, also consider rolling it out. There's no point in reinventing the wheel. Obviously, mm-hmm. providers, as we know, are different, but some of these interventions, if they work in one place, they probably will work in another place. Um, and it would be great um, if, I mean, that's one of the ambitions for Tezo, obviously, is that where we show that an intervention does work, that we hope that other providers can and should take up that intervention. You should have your own conference too. <laughs> we do, we do, we have a conference. Yes. Uh, we, oh my God, I've missed I that. I, I should have said that. It, it was actually announced yesterday. Um, our, our, our second annual conference is coming up on the 28th of, of April. Um, so uh, Ooh, very soon. Huh? Yes, we were kind of uh, trying to get obviously speakers um, yeah. uh, first and also the big question mark about in-person versus online. And mm. we've, 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 we've gone full in for an in-person event in London. So um, looking forward to, that'll be our first big in-person event ever really. So um, 
I'm hopeful that that will um, uh, will go ahead as planned. It's it's going to be in London, so obviously anyone can uh, register. Um, so it's not going to be hybrid people from um, people from outside of London. Oh yes, it will. It will be yes. Apologies. Oh, yes, wonderful. There will, there will be a streaming element. I'm not oh, sure if it will be. I, I I'm I'm sorry. I'm not fully. I'll have to talk to my events team. But I'm. Yeah. I know that we're we're we are we have got we chose a venue so that we could stream it. But just following up on this idea of evaluation, the power of evaluation, um, the quality of evaluation, you know, the Office for Students is proposing or requiring um, that activists should be independently evaluated and peer-reviewed. And um, it, it's quite interesting. There are other areas. Um, again, when we did the Civic University um, podcast, it, they, they had a proposal to have peer review evaluations as well. Have you seen this happen anywhere? Um, what is Taser's view about that in, in regards to, um, you know, in, to the work that it does itself? Um, yeah. yeah, well, I, I don't have any special uh, knowledge about the Office for Students thinking about this. I mean, I can, right. just, I can mm. more say what, what we think. I mean, obviously, we want people to work with us. But the key thing for us is that, uh, that evaluations are robust and independent. Um, I don't necessarily think that has to mean that it's um, uh, peer reviewed in the, in the sense of an academic journal, but it does no, need to meet certain standards, I think, of, of independence and of, of quality assurance. Um, I do think it can, of course, be in-house, although I think it would have to be by a different team in-house. Um, and while obviously, Tezo has an interest in saying, please come and work with us. I, I also appreciate that sometimes that won't be appropriate and that there's a certain model working with us. And I wouldn't, uh, I do want to encourage more evaluation in the sector generally. Uh, and so I would, um, I would endorse the idea that evaluation should be independent and should be robust as possible. Um, and that so sorry. So just second, some clarification. Are you saying that universities can and have been approaching TESO to act as an independent evaluator? So we we don't quite work like that. What we do is we commission. Um, we so I didn't really explain our work in this this sorry. podcast. <laughs> how we go about doing what we do. Um, uh-huh. So we, as I said at the, I think earlier in this conversation, we have mm-hmm. fourth thematic areas mm-hmm. and in each thematic area we first uh do a gaps analysis we first sort of say okay well what does the evidence tell us about where there are gaps in our knowledge uh, gaps mm-hmm. particularly in terms of what works uh in various interventions mm-hmm. um and then on the back of that wherever we find the most promising evidence we then commission further work in that area. So for example, on the first theme was pre-entry work, as I said, mm-hmm. and the gaps analysis showed that summer schools were the area that had the most promising evidence. Mm-hmm. So we then issued a tender asking the sector saying, we know that a lot of you are running summer schools. We will help you to better evaluate your uh, existing summer schools. We can pay to support a research assistant a bit with, uh, you know, by in doing so, yeah. and we will help you design the research methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so far, that has been our approach of, of, of commissioning on specific areas rather than um, working uh, to, to, to evaluate uh, projects outside of our uh, themes of work or one-off um, 
commissions. We haven't done that so far. It's partly we're a small team trying to establish the fact mm-hmm. that we we can do this evidence. I think in future, maybe from next year, I, w- I would be uh, very interested and willing to work with providers on a, on a wider range of, mm-hmm. of uh, evaluation activities. But I think working with Tezo is, is, is only one way of doing impact evaluation. We definitely want uh, to see further uh, type three impact evaluation. We think, you know, it can be done. Um, we hope that the resources on our website also support people to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had a lot of webinars on things like quasi-experimental designs, on theory of change, on randomized control trials. And we usually have at least 150 people on those um, webinars. So clearly uh, practitioners in the sector mm-hmm. are looking to do more of this in-house. Um, mm-hmm. In future, I think we will be interested in working more to help support people uh, evaluate their existing uh, interventions. But at present, uh, our model is very much to commission in the areas that we identify. So, so far, it's been summer schools, multi-intervention outreach and mentoring, and online teaching and learning, and the uh, curriculum uh, reform activities. And we soon will be uh, issuing new tenders to work with us on employability once that gaps analysis is published and on mental health and on disability. Um, so those are the new themes, but they have not yet been, uh, we have not yet commissioned the second phase of work, which is where we work directly with providers to evaluate their interventions. And we're really excited about that, by the way, the mental health and disability, of course, as well as employability. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but I, we're running out of time. <laughs> um, I think just to um, conclude that question um, about um, the Office for Students' proposals, that I, there are lots of, I believe there's lots of um, agreement or, you know, there's lots of, um, I, I'm trying to find the right word here, but um that you know asking for example working with the other access teams or access and participation teams in other universities to to support each other evaluate you know um evaluate that our activities is a really good way forward in the sense that we feel that these people really understand what we are doing as opposed to some people who just maybe don't know much about that but and that is something that you could do as part of the work that you already do. And, and that creates partnerships, which is always a really positive thing, the kind of collaboration. Um, yeah, actually, can I, can I just say something about it? Because I do really yeah. want to um, highlight that we can't work. Our work is not possible unless we work in partnership with the sector. So it's really mm-hmm. important um, for me to be very clear in this podcast mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. audience that we really are here to learn from you. We're really here mm-hmm. to collaborate with you. Uh, we know that we have things to learn in what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. We have a particular role to help support you uh, on, on the evaluation side, but there's much that we could do, mm-hmm. uh, and much that we can learn from uh, in mm-hmm. terms of the different kinds of things that are going on, because we don't know what's happening in every single higher education institution up and down uh, the country. Uh, we are mainly focused on England and Wales because of the OFS's remit. Mm-hmm. I, I did want to say something also about that. Um, we do work closely with the Office for Students, obviously, mm-hmm. but we are an independent organization. So mm-hmm. we set our own priorities. We set our own kind of strategy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we want to ensure that our work is useful 
So one of the things that we want to be um, useful for is helping providers meet, you know, their requirements under uh, access and participation plans, for example. Um, but we are here also to communicate to the Office for Students if you have any concerns about any of the challenges that you're facing. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And we've had those conversations. Um, I, I've, we have a good relationship with the Office for Students, but we are an independent organization. And ultimately, we also really need to make sure that we have credibility and partnerships uh, with um, those working in the sector. That sounds really wonderful. So if someone, um, some of our listeners want to know more about how to work with you, they what, should go to your website? Yes, go to our, go to our website. Please, uh, you can also um, register for our, our it's not, I think it is a monthly newsletter, uh, oh, yeah. our, our, our regular newsletter. Uh, everyone who uh, sort of registers for our newsletter will get, you know, information about our invitations to tender. We will be issuing probably in the next three months uh, new invitations to tender on those areas that I, I spoke about earlier, uh, uh, mental health, disability and employability. So we're really keen. If you think you're doing something really innovative that deserves uh, a little bit more support to evaluate effectively, we're really keen to work with and learn from you. Um, go to our website and check out our resources, including our toolkit. We've got quite a few webinars. Most of them are uploaded as well. You can watch them again. And we do continue to, um, la just last week, we had a webinar uh, with 150 people watching on quasi-experimental design. So even stuff that looks quite geeky and nerdy, all of you mm -hmm. are clearly just as interested in it as I am. So that's mm -hmm. great to know. Um, mm -hmm. But if there's anything else also that you think we should be doing, Please, yeah. Also, do do let do let me do let me know. Do let us know. Thank you so much, Omar. Is there anything else you want to say before we close? No, just thank you uh, for the thank opportunity, you. and uh, <laughs> it's been good to speak today. Really good. Thanks very much. Like I said, we're really chuffed to have had you here for our fifth episode. To our audiences, we would love to hear from you too. I would love your opinion on a couple of topics in particular. I have added two questions to Spotify on the tensions between the proposed control in student numbers and minimum attainment required for accessing student finance and assessing or evaluating the impact of outreach by its ability to persuade participants to enter higher education. I would love to know how you think this proposal will inform your work in the future and whether we are using an old narrative that needs revisiting. You can also leave your comments on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And you can also send us an email on accesspodcast at soas.ac.uk. We'll be interviewing John Blake, the new director for Office of Students, very soon. And we would love to know whether you have any questions for him. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Renata Albuquerque and my colleague Simon Tullet has edited this podcast for us. Bye-bye.